Thank you for inviting me into your home today for our Palm Sunday service. And you have time right now, if you want, to invite your friends on social media. And essentially, you can ask them to come to church with you today. So we look today at Jesus on Calvary. And we're continuing this Easter series that I've called Questions from Calvary. The title to this particular Sunday's, Palm Sunday's message, is An Anguished Question. And it was a question that Jesus asked. The word anguish can be defined as excruciating or acute distress, as suffering or as pain. And it's interesting to note that the word excruciate actually means out of the cross. You know, I'm examining questions because when questions are asked honestly by people, they reveal what's on the mind and what's in the heart of the asker. Inquiries reflect what we're thinking and what we're feeling. And this includes all of us. And it also includes Jesus, who was fully human, possessing a human mind and human emotions, the same as each of us. The theme verse for today is taken from Matthew chapter 27. And it's found at verse 46. And Jesus asked this question. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Other translations use the word forsaken. And some use the word deserted. But it's a cry of anguish that Jesus asked his father, why have you left me? Now, this was not a calm, reasonable question. It was an agonized inquiry. It was a pained cry. And we're going to look at these words in this particular passage, the cries of Jesus on Calvary, and we'll see that they reveal several things. The first was that the cries of Jesus on Calvary reveal the agony of abandonment. Now, if you're using this New Living Translation that's available here at Brookwood, you can turn to page 799. But of course, turn to any Bible you're using, and we'll be in Matthew chapter 27, and we'll begin at verse 45. And it says, at noon, literally, it says the sixth hour, which was in the Jewish timekeeping method, noon was considered the sixth hour. And so at noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock, which was the ninth hour. Now, this was not a solar eclipse because the, the moon was in the wrong phase. This was Passover week. And Passover occurred during a full moon, not a new moon, which is necessary for there to be an eclipse. This darkness was a supernatural act of God, displaying his judgment against the sins of the world, which were poured out on, but actually poured into his son. Verse 45, we continue. At about three o'clock, which was the time of the daily evening sacrifice in the temple, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, which was Hebrew, Lima Sabachthani, which was Aramaic, which was the spoken dialect, which was very similar to Hebrew. 
which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And it's a quote from Psalms chapter 22, verse 1. You know, it's interesting that this is the only place in the Bible where Jesus referred to his father as God. Every other time he called him father. At at another time, Abba father, which is a term of endearment. But understand, Jesus had become sin. And we can see that in 1 Corinthians 5.21. He didn't merely represent sinners and their sins symbolically. And so because Jesus became sin, God separated himself from his son. Because as Habakkuk 1.13 says, God would not look on sin. Or another way of seeing it is God would not allow sin in his presence, even sin in the person of his son. There's another verse I want you to see. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. And it's on page 979 in this particular Bible I'm holding. And it says, He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. Now let's understand who Jesus was. Unfortunately, as many of us are, Jesus did not rely on this world's resources for support. Now, as I spoke last week, he invited his friends, but he wasn't codependent on them. He wasn't reliant on them to prop him up. He did enjoy their companionship. But Jesus, you see, relied on his father. And he lost intimate relationship that he had had with his father. He was cut off from his father's favor, from his father's fellowship. And instead, he experienced God's full wrath, his just anger at the sin of mankind that was now personalized, embodied in his son. Separation from God, divine abandonment, which comes with feelings of hopelessness and despair, is the essence of hell. Perhaps hell has fire and brimstone, but I can say for sure, without doubt, that separation means isolation. I mean, hell means isolation and separation from God. Through Jesus' incarnation, he had experienced a partial separation by giving up divine privileges, by leaving heaven, and by becoming fully human. You can see that in Philippians chapter 2. But as a human, even though he wasn't in heaven in God's presence, he still could continually speak to his Father and listen to his Father, just as we can. But now his communication was interrupted. His connection was broken. You know, to a lesser degree, we sometimes experience the silence of God. Why would 
that happen? Why are there times that we pray and, and God doesn't seem to answer? He seems far away. Perhaps it's to teach us to reflect on our lives, reflect on our relationship with God, examine our faith, maybe even to practice trusting what we already know and to persevere in pursuing God. But in those times of silence, our experience is different than Jesus's because we never experience God's abandonment. You may ask, well, didn't Jesus understand that he would become sin? Didn't he know that he would suffer and that he would die to redeem mankind? And the truth is, yes, he did. But he had never experienced being cut off from his father. You know, right now, we're cut off from each other to a degree. In quarantine, we are without many resources that, unfortunately, a lot of us rely on to deal with, with our isolation, our loneliness, our anxiety. We go shopping. We socialize. We watch or participate in sports. We view entertainment. But even now, how much Hulu can you watch? Some of us indulge or overindulge in alcohol during this time that we, we feel a sense of sorrow as we're cut off from our friends. But God has not abandoned us. He's there if we'll call on him. But some of us may need to practice pursuing and calling out his name and listening quietly. And the truth is, this time of quarantine is a wonderful time to develop the ability to talk to God and to hear his reply. The cry of Jesus also aroused the contempt of the crowd. Verse 47 says this. Some of the bystanders misunderstood. Now, that's an unfortunate translation. Literally, the Greek just says heard. This implies that they heard and couldn't tell what Jesus was saying. But the Greek doesn't say that. It says that some of the bystanders heard Jesus calling for the prophet Elijah. Now, this is my idea. But I think these people... These same people who'd been taunting Jesus for claiming to be God's son. I think they were mocking him by saying he's calling on Elijah. He thinks he's God's son, so he thinks he's the Messiah. So now he expects Elijah, the forerunner, to show up and help him. You know, John 19 verse 28 tells us at this same time, Jesus knew that his mission was finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. And then we look at verse 48, back in Matthew 27. One of them, very likely a Roman soldier, one of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine. Some places it's considered wine vinegar, but what it is, it was wine that was heavily diluted with water. And so it was the common drink of, you know, 
laborers and the townsfolk and even the soldiers. And it did effectively quench thirst. And so one of these people, as I said, I think a soldier, ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink. And that fulfilled Psalm 69, verse 11. Perhaps this Roman soldier was being compassionate. And certainly this drink would have lessened Jesus' dehydration. He, he had to be depleted from, from perspiration, from carrying the cross, from, from the blood he'd shed. But while this soldier appeared to be showing a little kindness, the other people standing there objected. And the rest of them said at verse 49, wait, let's see whether Elijah comes to save him. In other words, don't help him. Don't make this easier on him. Let him keep calling for help. In other words, they were mocking him even more. Now, I want you to remember, put yourself there on Calvary. All of this was happening in darkness because darkness had already begun, remember? But rather than causing them to feel alarm or intimidation, which might have quieted them, the feeling of anonymity from the darkness seems to have fueled their anger. I wonder if it's somewhat like social media when you see people become very angry, almost furious over comments that another person posts. You know, it seems that the Jews who were gathered there in particular should have associated this unnatural darkness with God's judgment because there had been numerous references by Old Testament prophets who spoke of the darkness as the judgment of God. But these people were so focused on expressing their anger, they were so caught up in their ridicule that they didn't appear to reflect on what God might be doing at all. I wonder how we respond when someone is in agony in our midst, when someone is hurting. Do we become compassionate and kind and patient? Or do we grow irritated, even angry, at others' weaknesses? Another cry of Jesus revealed the significance of sacrifice. And we continue in verse 50. Then Jesus shouted out again, and he released his spirit. John 19.30 adds, after Jesus had tasted this wine vinegar, he said, it is finished. In other words, his mission was complete. Death was defeated. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Fulfilling Psalm 31.5. Understand that Jesus was willingly on this cross. And he even controlled the timing of his death. Jesus himself released his human spirit by a conscious act of his own will 
And that spirit went into the presence of the Father. At verse 51, we see that some strange things start happening at that instant. At that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This curtain that's referred to was between the holy place and the most holy place or the holy of holies. Remember, it was behind the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was placed and the mercy seat above it. But this particular curtain was a woven fabric that consisted of 72 twisted braids of 24 threads each. And this curtain was 60 feet high. And it was 30 feet wide and estimated to have been four inches thick. Now, this was a place where only the high priest could enter. And he was only allowed to pass by that curtain into the Holy of Holies one day per year on the Day of Atonement. And he went in there to sprinkle the blood of a sacrificial animal on the altar. And he did it as atonement for people's sins. But understand that that sacrifice was only symbolic. And the sacrifice, for that reason, had to be repeated every year. Because it was a foreshadowing. It anticipated the one true final sacrifice for sins that the Son of God would offer at Calvary. You can look in Hebrews chapter 9 and see more. This supernatural tear from the top, which was 60 feet up, could have only been done by God or by God's Spirit. And it symbolized the removal of the separation between God and man. Again, read Hebrews chapter 9 and chapter 10. See, the barrier of sin was forever removed from every person who put his trust in the sacrifice of Jesus. So that by Jesus' death, we have full access, freedom to enter the presence of God. This curtain or this veil, remember, was ripped while the temple was full of worshipers. That included priests, it included pilgrims. Because remember, this was at the time of the Passover sacrifice. So imagine the, the fright and the fear and the amazement as that curtain ripped. And the people who would have feared being anywhere near the Holy of Holies may have fled the temple out of concern that God might strike them dead. For you see, even the high priest would have a cord tied on his leg when he would enter behind that curtain in case he offended God and was struck dead so he could be pulled out because people knew you did not trifle with a holy God. The ceremonies and the priestly functions continued in this temple, however, until it was destroyed in 70 AD. Now that was 40 years later. But understand this, the divine significance of those sacrifices ended at Jesus' death as the new covenant replaced the old covenant. And we continue 
in Matthew 27, in verse 51. The earth shook, rocks split apart, and tombs opened. Now again, this was not a natural earthquake. It was God expressing, I, th- I think, His agony. Not only His wrath against His Son's sin, but the agony of the need to punish His own Son as He displayed His fury at the sin of a fallen world. And then another very strange occurrence happened. The bodies of many godly men and women who had died were raised from the dead. They left the cemetery after Jesus' resurrection, went into the holy city of Jerusalem, and it appeared to many people. See, the death of Jesus defeated death, which is caused by sin. And this victory was demonstrated in that instant by the resurrection of not all the believers who had died, but a select group. We don't know how many, but a small number of godly men and women were restored to life. Now, they didn't leave the area of their burial and go into Jerusalem until Sunday, Easter morning, after Jesus was first raised from the dead. You know, what I've just described is the deepest part of the gospel. This is the depth of the good news. So how does this truth affect you? How does understanding Jesus' death took your sins personally, individually, intimately, how does it influence your life today? The cries of Jesus also enabled the experience of execution by several of these soldiers. The Roman officer, literally in Greek it's centurion, and centurion is Latin for 100. So this is an officer who commanded 100 soldiers. So the Roman officer and the other soldiers at the crucifixion were terrified by the earthquake and all that had happened. The darkness, the splitting of boulders. Now, they may have not been aware of the tearing of the the veil or the curtain. And it's uncertain whether they could see these people rise from the dead, but they may have. But understand, these were hardened soldiers. This was very likely a crew or a team that was accustomed to crucifying people. And these men had demonstrated great cruelty, either by participating or by observing it. They had whipped Jesus. They mocked him by by taking off his clothes and dressing him in a scarlet robe. They placed a crown of thorns on his head. They put a stick in his right hand as a scepter. And then they kneeled before him and taunted him by saying, Hell, King of the Jews. Boy, they would all... One day, bow, wouldn't they? They spit on him. Then they took that stick scepter and they struck him in the head with it. They took the robe off of him and they put on his own clothing again. Then they led him to Calvary and they nailed him to the cross with spikes through his wrist 
and through his feet. And then as they felt no emotion, no compassion, they gambled for his clothing. You know, if these men were religious at all, they were idolaters. And they probably possessed little knowledge about Judaism. They were probably not informed about the Jewish Messiah and may have known nothing about this man called Jesus or or what he'd been doing for the previous three years. They just knew that this man was convicted of claiming to be the king of the Jews. But they sensed that this natural phenomenon, awesome as it was, had a supernatural origin. See, their fear, I don't believe, was caused just by these strange events, but rather they could understand, they could grasp that there was divine power behind it. And they said in verse 54, this man truly was the Son of God. Now, Mark tells us that it wasn't all of them that said, but rather the centurion spoke it, perhaps on the behalf of the others. And Luke 23, verse 47, says that this centurion actually worshipped God as he said this. How could he have known? Certainly, some strange things had happened. But salvation only comes by revelation, not by fear, not by shock. And many people were on that hill on that day that didn't come to faith. But this centurion and perhaps some of his soldiers did because the Holy Spirit revealed to them that this dying man who looked completely human and depleted was the divine Son of God. Have we seen that? Has the Holy Spirit confirmed in each of us that that man Jesus, who died on Calvary over two centuries ago, over two millennium ago, should I say, was God's own Son. We remember Jesus' death through the Lord's Supper. And so if you haven't already right now, just gather whatever you need. This is a symbolic practice. So you can use a slice of bread. You can use crackers. Any kind of juice is fine. And if you don't have that, even a cup of tea will do. Because we're just symbolizing what Jesus did on the night he was with his disciples in what we call the upper room there during Passover week. Jesus shared the Passover meal with his disciples in an upper room that was borrowed, perhaps rented from a man. And during this meal, Jesus had told his disciples that he would be betrayed by one of them. And they were shocked and and that he would die and they even resisted it. But Matthew 26, 26, you can just turn over one page, tells us this. 
Matthew chapter 26, beginning at verse 26. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Take your bread out. He broke this bread. And you can break yours if you like. You can share it if you want. But he blessed it. So let's, let's too, ask God to bless our practice right now. Father, we are reminded at this moment that you became human so that you could die. That you suffered physically, but more you suffered spiritually so that we could be forgiven. And so, Lord, we thank you and we ask that through your wounds, we are healed spiritually and we live lives of wholeness. Amen. And then he broke it in pieces and he gave it out. He passed it out to the disciples just around the table. And he said, take this and eat. For this is my body. And you eat as well. And then he took a cup. This was the fourth cup of the night. It was the cup of redemption. He took the cup of wine. And he gave thanks for it. So again, we want to pray. Jesus, you poured out your blood and your blood represented your life. Only by your death could our sins be washed away. And we thank you for that act of sacrifice, for that act of mercy mercy that's extended to us by grace. Amen. And then he gave the cup and they drank from one cup. You probably don't want to do that today, the season that we're in. But he said, each of you drink from it. For this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. And they drank. And you drink also. And then he continued, mark my words. I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. See, Jesus isn't participating in celebrating with wine until the day when he returns and he gathers us all and we join him at a wonderful wedding feast, the Feast of the Lamb. And you can find reference to it in Revelation 19. And all of us who have received His sacrifice by faith are invited. And all of us sit at that table as His honored guest. And then they sang a hymn. And they went out to the Mount of Olives. And that was where we looked at just a couple of weeks ago. Jesus 
would cross the valley of of Kidron. He would go into the olive grove. He would separate from his disciples, taking three farther into the garden. And he would pray as he encountered a night of torment and turmoil and great torture. He would be arrested that night, tried through the evening, and crucified the next morning. But after his death, he triumphed over sin and death. And by faith, he offers that victory to us as well. You know, let me urge you to discuss with your family the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Talk through the passage we've looked at today. And I urge you, ask questions and let each person speak. You know, if you're feeling isolated during this this time of quarantine or even anxious or perhaps you're even flustered from too much family togetherness, feel free to call the church office. Our care ministry continues to provide counseling as well as aiding in crises and, and offering financial care as well. And as always, we'd be happy to pray with you and for you. There are many, many care resources that are available on our website, brookwoodchurch.org slash help. And so if we can help you or someone we know, please call us at 864-688-8355 or visit our website, brookwoodchurch.org. And if you want to leave prayer requests, you can just go to slash prayer. Thank you for watching. And I trust God has spoken to you. Thanks for joining us today for our online Brookwood service. Make sure to visit brookwoodchurch.org for ways to give, serve, connect, view the latest updates, or find encouragement from our pastors. To contact us, you can email us at pastors at brookwoodchurch.org or you can call the offices at 864-688-8200. Or you can find us on Facebook or Instagram. Thank you so much for staying connected. And just remember that we're the church no matter where, how, or when we meet. We'll see you next time.